We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. It's 1939 in Germany, and the future is looking bright, although there's just a possibility of war. But in the six years since their new and charismatic leader, Adolf Hitler, was elected, things have just been getting better and better, though not so much if you're a Jew. Unemployment had been at 30% when Hitler came to power. By 1938, there wasn't any. German self-esteem and pride has reached an all-time high. Hitler has taken back the Ruhr. Austria has been enthusiastically absorbed into the new empire that is going to last for a thousand years. The Germans in the Sudetenland district of Czechoslovakia, after a tense confrontation with England and France, have become part of the new empire. Hitler has even gone on to take over the rest of Czechoslovakia. It wouldn't be long now before he gets Danzig back and maybe even bits of Prussia that Germany had been forced to give to Poland at the end of World War I. So what's the Hugo Boss story? Where did he come from and what was his connection with the Nazis? And what about the company today? Hugo Boss was born on the 8th of July, 1885. He was the fifth and the youngest child from the marriage of Heinrich and Louise Boss. Typically, for that time, only his sister survived her childhood to become an adult. The rag trade seems to have been in the blood of the Boss family going back this early, possibly earlier, I haven't looked. His parents had a business selling lingerie and linen. They lived in the Swabian town of Metzingen. Swabia is in the southwest of Germany. During World War I, Hugo served in the German army without any distinction. He went in a private and he came out a private. And that wasn't easy to do. There were so many openings for people to rise through the ranks. Always a lot of vacancies. He took over his parents' shop. No, he did more than just take over their business. He opened a factory to manufacture all sorts of clothing, including shirts and the traditional smart jacket still worn today in the Tyrolean region of Germany. He employed between 20 and 30 seamstresses. But life had been pretty good, but at various times during the Weimar Republic, the name for the first democracy that was put into place in Germany after World War I, there were terrible economic problems. And then came the worldwide Great Depression like a huge sledgehammer. It seems that Hugo Boss just managed to avoid going bankrupt. But by 1931, all he had was six sewing machines. 
Adolf Hitler had lived in Munich since the end of World War I, when the Nazi Party grew in Germany. It was strongest in Bavaria than it was anywhere else in Germany. I don't know whether it was a rush of blood to his head, optimism for the future, or just something that he did. But in the year 1931, the designer label Hugo Boss was first registered, two years before Adolf Hitler came to power. With the benefit of hindsight today, people tush-tush about the evil people who joined the Nazi party. I figure that many of the schoolchildren today who block up our cities with demonstrations about the issues that are in and trendy would, back in the day, have been the kids at the front of the queues to join the Hitler Youth Movement in the 30s, such as life, being cool and idealism. So it was that with just six sewing machines and not much work or money, Hugo Boss joined the Nazi party. By the end of the war, he was one of eight and a half million other people who had joined the Nazi party as well. But he joined very early. Hugo said after the war that he joined the Nazi party because it promised it would cut unemployment in Germany, and it certainly did that. But there were probably a lot of other reasons behind his decision. Typically today, many business people join political parties because of the chances of membership helping their business. So if you, say, own Adani, you might join the Greens Party. After joining the party, Hugo Boss became a sponsor of the SS, the German Labour Front, the Reich Air Protection and several other Nazi-run community groups. Then, help his business, it did. The French have a saying, plus ça change, plus la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The war was great for business. Hugo Boss could never make enough uniforms to meet the demand. In 1936, his business had only been making 200,000 Reichsmarks. By 1940, a year after the war had started, he was making better than a million Reichsmarks. But Hugo Boss needed around 250 people to work in his factory to keep up production, and the German armed forces needed the men in his factory for the front. So where would he find workers? Hugo Boss started to have forced labour sent to him to work in his factory. First, he started with 140 labourers. Later, he got another 40 French prisoners of war. These people were mostly from France. Germany hadn't yet invaded Russia, and the death camps, like Auschwitz, had not yet even been thought of. Conditions for these workers were described as horrendous, but they were the lucky ones. Forced labour meant that they had to be housed, fed, clothed and guarded. There was an obvious solution that would have saved Germany from using any forced or slave labour at all. Hitler, throughout the war, refused to have women put into the workforce, which every other country that Hitler was fighting was doing. If German women had been brought into the labour force, there would have been about 5 million available for armaments production, and about 3 million additional soldiers would have been added to Hitler's armies. 
From 1942 to the end of the war, Hugo Boss's factory could only keep up production by the use of slave labour, now from Eastern Europe. In 1943, a camp was built for slave labourers from Eastern Europe in the Metzingen area, where Hugo Boss's factory was located. These people were treated as being subhuman untermenschen. The camp wasn't well-funded, so conditions of hygiene, food and medical attention were appalling. One of the forced labourers working for Hugo Boss described him as being fair and caring. But there were other more committed Nazis working for him who treated the slave labourers badly and often threatened them with being sent to the proper concentration camps. On the plus side, Hugo Boss did set up a canteen for the slave labourers to have a midday meal. There were also efforts by him to increase the food and diversity of the food available in the canteen by getting foods from the nearby farms. There's one story of one of Hugo Boss's female workers which shows the other end of the spectrum. Josefa Gisterek came from Poland and worked at the factory from October 1941. Her sister was already there. Josefa asked for leave to visit her parents and eight brothers and sisters, and she was refused. But she hadn't been working there very long. She left anyway and was caught by the Gestapo. She was locked up in Auschwitz and later Buchenwald. Eventually, Hugo Boss intervened himself on her behalf. He found out where she was being held through his contacts in the Nazi party and had her returned. Her foreman seemed to be determined on revenge. She was denied medical treatment and eventually suffered a complete breakdown. She was then allowed three months off work. Pretty good going for slave labour. When she was due to return, she committed suicide in the house where she was living. Hugo Boss paid for her funeral himself and also for the cost of her family to come to her funeral. If it wasn't extremely poor taste to say so, you could take the view that Hugo Boss's business had pioneered the practices of many designer labels today that use slave labour. At the end of the war, Hugo Boss was sentenced as being incriminated with the Nazis. He was fined 100,000 Deutschmarks. He later had that conviction overturned. So now Hugo Boss and his business had to decide on their future. Hugo Boss didn't live long after the war. He died in 1948, just three years after the war had ended. His son-in-law, Eugen Holly, took over running the business. He continuously expanded it. The company began designing and selling men's suits in the 1950s. By 1960, the sales of Hugo Boss had reached 3.5 million Deutschmark, but it was facing bankruptcy. In 1969, Eugen's two sons, Jochen and Ulwe, took over the business. They made the company into the successful international fashion design brand that it is today. In 1984, they had the foresight to expand the business into fragrance lines. Today, the brand employs nearly 15,000 people worldwide, 
The range of products include business, casual and athletic wear, elegant evening wear. They also have branded shoes, eyewear and watches. Australia's own Chris Hemworth became the face of the Hugo Boss fragrance line in 2017. In financial year 2018, Hugo Boss generated 4.5 billion Australian dollars in sales. But the Nazi past lingers, and like many companies that had slave labour, Hugo Boss had paid out reparations for its victims. In 2013, at a GQ awards night, Russell Brand, a comedian who knows what today's woke generation wants, although it changes with such rapidity that the person who is woke early this morning may be unwoke by mid-morning, cracked a joke about the Nazi past of Hugo Boss and was goose-marched off the stage. I've never found Russell Brand funny or intelligent, and cheap shots really don't deserve to get anyone's admiration, unless you're lucky, unlucky more like it, enough to be still woke. And by the way, Hugo Boss didn't make Hitler's clothes. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.